Okay, this morning's reading, we're going to be in uh, Romans 6, backing up to 12 through the rest of the chapter. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting your members of your, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks, Jim. Um, let's uh, start with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll go ahead and take a look at the, our text. Um, Lord, thank you for that great last line, Lord, that the, um, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And Lord, um, that is a, a gift that we can never, ever begin to repay. Lord, that it is, um, it is such a great thing that you've given us. Help us treasure that, Father. And uh, Father, I want to offer prayers on behalf of um, Bob Kempel as he's recovering from his eye surgery. Uh, Lord, would you continue to heal him? And um, I pray that he would be able to use the renewed eyesight um, to spend more time in your word and to um, worship with and encourage the saints. So, uh, Father, thank you for healing him in that way. Father, we pray for Judy and her stamina. Lord, would you renew her strength? Um, have her to uh, mount up like an eagles um, and to, uh, to continue to follow after you. Uh, Lord, I want to pray um, for this pandemic that we're facing. Father, thank you that the death rate from this is so very mercifully low. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would keep it that low. Father, I pray for those who have been affected by it, who have been hospitalized and really truly suffered from uh, contracting this virus. Lord, I pray that those, uh, those moments of just helplessness, of struggling for a breath, Lord, would waken many people to um, the reality that this life is transitory, it's short, and that there must be something more. Father, that you might use um, their, their suffering with uh, breathing to remind them of eternity, to call them to something bigger than themselves. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would continue to keep this under check as we're watching hospitalization rates um, fall again. Father, I pray that, um, that we would as uh, people, it's not just our nation, it's the whole world, 
would continue to respond well to this and that uh, by your mercy, we would uh, keep it under check and, until you grace us with a vaccine to, to put it away. Uh, and Lord, that's something you've done before. We've seen polio virtually disappear, uh, numerous other diseases. So Father, um, we thank you that you've given us medical technology to discover those things. And Lord, would you give us the grace to develop them and to distribute them well and evenly. And uh, Father, along those same lines, I pray for the teachers who are this week preparing to return to school. Um, Lord, there's various responses to that from real fear um, to uh, people who are just confused about how the classes are going to work and, and what a school year will look like. Lord, would you have mercy on our teachers and uh, give them a, a creative spirit, a, a clear insight in how to teach during a pandemic. And uh, Father, keep them safe. Um, and then Father, we want to pray also for the Fredericks uh, as they are uh, dealing with housing issues. Lord, we pray for just the right house there in St. Louis area uh, for them, Lord, a place that can be um, uh, a, a real home to them, but also Lord, a base of ministry a place where they can uh, continue to reach and, uh, the people around them and maybe use their house as a, um, a Bible study um, location. Um, all those various things, Lord, would you bless them with the, the place that they need in order to continue to serve you there. And uh, Father, now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand. Lord, you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth and make us submissive to your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, yeah, we did that. Bit, bit, uh, Jim mentioned it at the beginning. We're backing up and coming at it again. Um, it, it's just these thoughts are so interlinked that it's hard to separate them. And instead of me summarizing, I figured, why don't, why don't we just let the text summarize? So that's where we're going to start. Um, just as a refresher, where we're at, we've, we've done the need for salvation. Everybody is, um, is a sinner. We learned later on that that's because they're under Adam. And then Paul introduced us to the idea of justification. And um, what justification is, is, is not just being declared innocent, but be ag being declared actually righteous. And we saw that God did that, um, first of all, by assigning to us an alien righteousness. He didn't just say, poof, that doesn't matter anymore. He, he took a real righteousness and assigned it to us. And that was the righteousness of God. That's the righteousness that comes from Jesus. We saw that this was by his grace. It was his unearned love for us that he decided he would justify us. And then we also saw that it is by faith that we are justified, not because we behave well enough or good enough or smart enough. It is simply because we, we say, well, we surrender and we're just going to trust that you're going to do that. Did you notice all of those things were fairly passive? Um, there was nothing active that we had to do. As a matter of fact, last week I mentioned the first time we get an imperative directed to us is in verse 12. That's the first time Paul has told us to do anything. Um, justification is passive. It's not something we earn. It's not something we achieve. Um, being in Adam just comes naturally to us. We don't have to struggle to sin. It just happens. Um, we're united with Christ. That's the fruit. That's the product of justification. And, and so in all of this, we've been passive. Um, so when we get to this part, we say, okay, we're saved. Now what do we do? And, and that's one of the questions that Paul has raised a couple of times. Uh, you remember chapter six began, um, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Um, what are we supposed to do? 
And that's where we're going today is we're going we're gonna to say, okay, now that I'm saved, now what do I do? And so what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see what we must do, which is verses 12 through 14, how we must do it, which is 15 through 19, and why we must do it, which is 20 through 23. Um, so what we must do, um, backing up to verse 12, before we dig into that, um, I just want to clarify something for us uh, briefly, because it'll be important when we begin to discuss what we must do. Um, have you ever heard anybody say, you do not have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body? Or um, we're not physical beings having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. Have you ever heard those, those kind of phrases? By the way, the first one's attributed to C.S. Lewis, he never said it. Um, it it's got a kind of a different pedigree, but it's, it's not a, a C.S. Lewis quote. The idea is what we are at our essence, what we're really most central to our being is that we're spiritual and we just happen to be having this physical thing. Um, and we see that uh, in the idea that when we die and uh, we go to heaven, then we'll just be happy and everything will be great because we will be disembodied spirits floating on clouds. And it's important for us to, to, to understand this rightly. Um, the reason that I think people come up with this idea sometimes is there's places where it sounds like that's what it's being said. So, uh, for example, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, So we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So doesn't that sound like it would be better to not have a body? Um, or Paul says in Philippians 1, beginning of verse 23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for it is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. So it sounds, it sounds almost like Paul is saying, well, you know, I just want to shed this body and be my true spiritual self, because then I can go be with the Lord. Um, but we have to be careful to remember that our final state is not a disembodied spirit. That, that's not the ideal. It's better than what we have now, but it's not the goal that we're aiming at. So let's take 2 Corinthians 5, that quote that I read, 6 through 8, and broaden the context a little bit. Because right before that, Paul says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this, this body we have now, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed we, by putting it on, we may, be more, uh, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So the context there is he's saying it's not good to be naked. In other words, it's not desirable to be this disembodied spirit. Um, that's, that's where we will be for a period of time, but it isn't the end goal. And so like in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the resurrection, in verse 53, he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on more, uh, immortality. Uh, what he's saying is, this is not the, the exact 
form the body that we have in the future will be, but we will have a body. And, and so we're not just these disembodied spirits. Um, as a matter of fact, that's not how God created us. So that idea that we're spiritual beings having a physical existence, um, that just isn't, it doesn't fit with the biblical picture. When God created Adam, uh, Genesis 2, 7, he says, God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living uh, creature. We were created from the very beginning to be both body and soul. God formed a body. God blew uh, breath into it. Breath is the same word as, as spirit. So we are supposed to be body and soul together. Um, and, and that's why when we look forward to the resurrection, our resurrection will not be a spiritual resurrection where we'll float around. It will be a physical resurrection. These physical bodies will stand up again. That's what Job said. Um, I, once this flesh is destroyed, I know that I will stand on the earth and see my Redeemer with these eyeballs. He was counting on that physical body coming back. So why fuss over um, our physical nature, our physical body? Why, why bring that up? Well, it's because what Paul tells us that we must do um, involves our physical body. So listen again to how it begins. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This is the mortal body. And what he's saying is this body, don't let sin reign in it to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your physical attributes, not just your hands and feet, all of you, your physical members. Don't let your present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves. Now notice he goes, present, don't present your physical body, but present yourself. And so what he means by saying yourself is your entirety, your, your renewed spirit that's within you, but also your physical body. Present your entire self to God as a united whole, as those who have been brought from death to life. And, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit in a moment. Um, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So take that body of yours and present it to God as uh, for instruments of righteousness. So what he's telling us here is we have died with Christ and we have been united with Christ. That took us from the category of Adam to the category of Christ. It took us from the category of sin and death and condemnation and brought us into new life in Christ. Now, when you became a Christian, when you had that aha moment, when you said, I do believe that Jesus is Lord, did you physically die at that moment? Did your body collapse to the ground and stop breathing and, and no brain activity or anything? That didn't happen. That's not what Paul's talking about when he says that we have died and been raised with Christ. Is He's talking about our spiritual side. Our, 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 our heart has been renewed. Our mind has been renewed. But our physical body remains what it was. It, it continues on. So therefore, he says, don't let sin reign in this mortal body. Um, now, I, I think that is really a, a, a problem that we're in now, between now and the resurrection, is our inside, our spirit has been renewed. Um, that's what Paul told us earlier, is he said that the spirit has poured abroad, has poured out in our hearts a love for God. Our heart has been changed, but the physical body that we're walking in hasn't. And we've been in, some of us have been in this body for quite a while. And this body 
has been in certain habits, heading in certain directions, walking in specific ways. And, and it's used to doing it that way. And, and for the younger folks, you may not have had as many years of having that body trained in that direction, but um, your parents train you to do the right things. So that's that you were born in Adam kind of thing. And you needed to be trained. You need to have your body told what to do. Um, and so that's where he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Um, you've spiritually been set free from it, but your body has these directions. And he says to, uh, to reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Um, this really is the issue is it's not just a physical thing where your body is used to going in a certain direction. Your body still has passions. It still has desires. It still tends towards things that it used to do. But we're told to not let it rain because we have been made new from the inside. Um, and you, you can't really see it in English so well, but that its passions is not pointing to the word sin, but it's pointing to your mortal body. So this really is something that is not foreign to us outside of us. It's something that's very personal and very real with us. We carry it around. And he says, instead, present yourselves. Um, present yourselves to God. We're to present our entire self, our integrated self, body and soul to God. We're, we're to bring the whole, the whole thing to him. Um, so that means that we have a fight on our hands. Um, we can't shed this body and just be spiritual and perfect um, instead, we have this tension that goes on, and that's going to happen until the resurrection when this body is released from sin and made right. So he, Paul, Paul is telling us, okay, you've been justified by faith, by grace. You have been united with Christ as a result of that um, justification. Now you have to live like that, and to live like that is a fight. It is a war against that part of your, your being that wants to continue in those passions. Um, but you have experienced, you've got a foretaste of the resurrection, he says, as those who have been brought from death to life. You've already got a taste of it. You know that it's coming. Um, we're just waiting for the other half of the resurrection, which is physical. And so we're supposed to present our members to God as instruments of righteousness. Um, we are to do what we are supposed to do. We are, we are, it's, and it's a war. It, he presents it as a struggle. Um, now, there's hope here. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you. So here's, here's the promise is, yes, your spirit is wanting to go this way, and your body is used to going that way, and there's a struggle. But what he promises is he says, you, you're not to let sin reign because it can't. It's been broken. You're not under law, you're under grace. So our, our bodies, um, when, our, when we're obeying the passions of our mortal flesh and we're doing those sinful things, when that happens, um, if we were under law, one mistake would ruin us. One misstep would, would completely undo us. Um, because remember what we said, law is not there to constrain sin. Law is there to make sin more sinful, to show sin what it is. So if we're under law, if we stumble in one point, we're guilty of it all. That's what James says in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law that fails in one point becomes guilty of all of it. That is the burden. That's the weight of law pressing upon you. 
is, is one mistake and you're done. One mistake and you are had. So that's why it's great news that we're not under law, but we're under grace. Grace is not earned. Great is, grace is not achieved. Grace is not something that we win to ourselves. So we're under grace. And, and because we're under grace, we have the ability, we have the flexibility to struggle against that bodily desire that wages war in one direction. And we have the room to work on that, to struggle against it. One mistake won't undo our relationship with God, but we're called to do it. We're called to wrestle that way. And so that's what we have to do. What, we're, what Paul is telling us here, what we must do is put sin to death. We must wrestle sin to the ground. We have a, a war that will go on from the moment we're com, uh, converted to Christ until the moment we're uh, with him in glory, that we are fighting against that desire. And, and it's, it's a war that we're called to engage in, and it's what we have to do. Now, having said that, Paul doesn't just say, okay, so, you know, good luck with that. He also tells us how we must do it. So what we must do is war against sin. What we must, or how we must do it, is what comes next. So he begins by saying, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Picking up on how that last section ended. It, isn't it interesting? He asked that question a couple of times. At the beginning of 6, he said, uh, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And now he picks it up again. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? So why does he ask that question twice? I mean, isn't it basically the same question? Um, why does he bring that up? Is the question redundant? Um, I think one of the reasons that he asked the question is because there is still the desire towards sin. Our, our natural body has passions, and so there is still that desire towards sin. So people could make the mistake of looking at the fact that we're saved by grace and then have uh, not been made aware of that, that mortal body's passions and say, well, then can we continue to sin? And what Paul is, is, the reason he brings it up again is because it's a real threat. It's a live threat to us, that desire towards sin. So here's what we need to do. Since we're not under law, but we're under grace, we, we have to fight sin this way. Don't present your, or don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient servants, you are slaves of the one you obey. So whose slave are you? Who is your master? And, and that's what we learned in chapter five. In chapter five, we saw that we were under Adam. We were born of Adam. We inherited Adam's sin. We inherited Adam's sin nature, his bent towards disobeying God. And, and under Adam, what we gain, what we, we, what we receive under Adam is not only sin, but condemnation and ultimately judgment and wrath. And, and that's what we had. So that was where we were the slave of sin. As it was just how we were. It was where we were born. But when we come to Christ, something has happened. We're justified by faith. We're united with Christ. And now we're not united with Adam. We're, we're united with Christ. Something has changed. Something is different. Therefore, Paul says, the way you fight that fight is recognizing you're no longer a slave to it. You've been liberated. You've been set free. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have been become obedient from the heart. 
So here's, here's the key to fighting that battle. What you must do is, is war against the sin that your, your natural body is, is drawing you to. The way you do it is, thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have been become obedient from the heart. It is to recognize that something has changed. We've moved from Adam to Christ, and our heart is now different. Our, our desires are now different. So um, there, there's some important theology here that we need to pick at a little bit. Um, in Luke 18, Paul tells a, or Paul, uh, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. And uh, let me just read the parable, and then we'll, we'll point some things out. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to, down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbled himself will be exalted. So look at that Pharisee for a moment. Paul has just said, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin had become obedient from the heart. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. So the Pharisee has got good theology. He recognizes that his obedience is a gift from God. Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men. And his practice was right. He did the right things. I fast uh, twice a week. I give tithes. Uh, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. Um, I, I don't do those things. So his theology was right, and his practice was right. But what Jesus says in the end is he didn't go home justified. It was the tax collector that went home justified. How did he get it so wrong? If he did everything externally right, you can see that Pharisee would have been just amazed to hear that he was not okay with God. Well, the reason is because his approach is wrong. He, he's, his, all of his, his thoughts are external. Um, I'm not like that man. Um, I thank you that I'm not like that man. I thank you that I do these things. So what he's doing is he's saying, Lord, my relationship to you is based on the fact that I'm doing these things. And, and even though I'm getting it from you, it's based on my inherent goodness that I can do these. Whereas the tax collector is the one who looks to God and says, I'm not worthy. I, I, I Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. He's not looking to himself and saying, look at all the wonderful things I did. He's looking to God and counting on God's mercy. Lord, be merciful to me. And therefore, he's justified. So we, we have to be careful with this because even when we're a slave to sin, we can think we've got it all together. And, and do you remember from the first few chapters when we were talking about people who needed to be saved, the first category was the, the uh, pagan, the uh, the Gentile didn't really have any care or concern about what God had said or what he wanted. Um, his conduct was terrible or sometimes it was good. It was back and forth. Didn't really matter. Um, the second category was the moralist and the moralist looks at that person and says, well, I would never do those things. And then the third category was the religious person, which would be this Pharisee. 
Um, his theology is good, his practice is good, but his heart is not towards God. Um, his approach is wrong. So what's going on here is we could be in that category still and look at ourselves and go, but I'm doing it. What more do you want out of me? Um, what we, what you want, what God wants out of you is this very subtle difference between the Pharisee and the person who's justified, which is the Pharisee is saying, look at me, look at what I've done. I'm relying on myself. Therefore, accept me. And the, the sinner who's justified says, you have justified me. You have made me to be righteous in your eyes. You have taken me from Adam. You've put me in the category of Jesus. And now what do I do to follow you? How do I follow? It's a very subtle difference. Um, and I, I like the way that Bob Dylan put it. Um, in uh, 1979, Bob Dylan re released an album. Um, he'd had an experience, a uh, religious experience. Um, he did three albums that were essentially Christian in kind of nature. And uh, his first one um, uh, called Slow Train, he does a song, Gotta Serve Somebody. And here's one of, the, one of the verses in the chorus. You might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. You might like to drink whiskey. You might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And what I like about that verse is he's, he's taking the idea of the person who is um, well off or poor, um, who is righteous or unrighteous. You may drink whiskey or milk. Um, you may sleep on the floor or a king-size bed. You may eat caviar or, or, or eat bread, e either one. But either category, you're going to have to serve somebody. And, and so there's no sure guarantee that because you, you're living comfortably or you've got all the good stuff, that you're in the right category. Or if we go back to Jesus' parable, it's really kind of scary to think I could be doing and, and confessing the right things and still not be justified um, because I've put the cart before the horse. So how we do what Paul tells us in the first section is essentially, is, is extremely important. If we're doing it in order to be welcomed by God, if, or if we think by doing these things, God will like me more, um, then we're missing it. We've missed the point. Uh, we must never confuse our obedience with our justification. We're not accepted because we do these things, no matter how, what reason we do them for. We do these things because we've been accepted. It's a subtle difference, but it's, it's crucial. So Paul goes on, he says, having been, been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So again, he's backing up, you were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to righteousness, even though that body of yours is still warring against it. So um, when we enter that struggle, what is really important for us to remember, what Paul is telling us in this section is we're not doing it alone. Um, God has done things in us. And so, for example, in Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this we toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
So do you see what Paul says? For this I toil. He is actually toiling. He is struggling. He is working extra hard to do the things that God has told him, but it's with the energy that he powerfully works in me. So when we're talking about being justified and how do we live now in this idea of what, what Paul will eventually call sanctification, to be made more holy, we have to remember that it, it begins, its root is in the fact that we have been justified. And therefore, what comes out of that is that we struggle towards sanctification. But we do it with the power that God's working in me. 1 Corinthians 15 again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So again, Paul says, look, I am working. My, my experience is that I am toiling. I am working extraordinarily hard, but it's not me. It's that's within me. So one last one, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And here's, here's where he goes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice he says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Not work to be saved. But you have been saved. Now work that out. Take that forward. Carry that forward. Why? Because it's God who works in you. And he works both to will, those desires, those passions, and also to work for his good pleasure. So this is the important part of our sanctification is first, it's a war. We have to do it. It is something we engage in. We do these things. But how we do it is we don't do it in our own power. We don't do it by thinking, oh, I just will, you know, slide into this or, um, you know, God must be really pleased because I did so well today or something. Um, you were once sinners. You were once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You were once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient. That was that justification, that change of heart. It's an obedient from the heart. So the body is doing something, but the heart, which is our desires, is, is doing something different. And it's, it's a standard of teaching to which you're committed. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. This growth in, in holiness, this increased sanctification does not happen in a vacuum. So listen again to what Paul says. He says, you are no longer slaves of sin. You have a new standing that was given to you. Jesus has done that. He did that for you. You are obedient from the heart. These new desires are opposite of what's going on in your body. And what is that? Well, that's when the Holy Spirit poured out the love of God in your heart. You are obedient from that heart to a standard of teaching. This is a new definition of reality. And, and it's contrary to what we did in, our, in trying to figure it out ourselves, a standard of teaching. There is a body of truth that we have to embrace. We become obedient from that. And the thing is, God has given the church teachers. He, he's given to the church people who will help us understand this new standard of teaching or this new type of teaching and this new um, um, understanding of the teaching of God. He's given us Paul. Thank you, Lord. Paul has done a very good job. He, he's given us people throughout history who've unpacked and explained scriptures to us. Thank you, Lord, for that. 
So this is not something you just go off in a closet and do by yourself. This is something that we have to be involved in. And this is why the reformers said that um, preaching and teaching is a means of grace. And what that means is that the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word brings to us the grace of God. It, it brings us grace because we're hearing God's voice. And so that's a, a, an important thing for us to not neglect. Um, when we gather together, one of the central things that we do is we sing. Well, even in that, what, what Paul tells us is we sing to each other. We're, we're singing about God to each other. It's a form of preaching and teaching. And when we teach, we're bringing that same message. We, that will help us conform. That will help us fight that war. Um, that's the good news is you've got all this stuff stacked in your favor in that fight that you are called to personally engage in. You, you can't be sanctified by yourself by trying real hard. Um, this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 3 through 6. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being vain if indeed it wasn't vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you work miracles among you and do works of um, um I'm sorry, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what Paul says is you began this, this life by the Spirit. Remember what, you, what happened to, for you to become justified? You heard that Jesus had died to take your place, to take your sins, and you believed that. You said, I'm going to trust that and nothing else. You began that way. Now do we go on in sanctification and go, well, now I just have to try real hard. Now it's just up to me. No, you, you began by the Spirit. You continue by the Spirit. And, and he supplies the Spirit. And, and that's the good news. It's by trusting Jesus to be our righteousness that we can continue on. Well, what's our goal here? What, how do we know if we're being sanctified? How do we know if we're growing in that holiness? Uh, what does the end goal look like? Well, the end goal is that we are conformed to Jesus. We look more like Jesus. That's what he's told us is we're united with Christ. And so where we look like Adam more and more, now we're united to Christ. We look less like Adam. We look more like Jesus. I have a few scriptures to, to back that up. Um, Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of son. You were meant to look more like Jesus. And, and so what we do is we war against sin. How we do it is by trusting in him. And what it looks like where we're heading is to be more like Christ. 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we, what he's saying is we're not there yet. Right now we're, we're in this rugged spot where we're wrestling through sin. But when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. The fullness will come about. And we will be conformed to the image of Christ. One last one, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what God is saying is you started in, in passions of your former ignorance. Now you're called to be obedient children, and where you will look like is growing in holiness to look like God and his holiness. So that's, that's what we must do is war against that sin. How we must do it is in the strength of the Lord, is only in his power. Where we're heading is to looking more like Jesus. What, or why must we do this? What, what is the end goal? What's the, the, the thing that we get from this war? And that's the last three verses. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in our Christ Jesus our Lord. So why must we do this? First of all, we have to hear it one more time. We are justified by grace through faith. We are not justified by struggling and trying real hard. We are justified by grace, by God's free gift, through faith. Passive, we didn't do anything. All we did was stop doing something. We said, I'm not going to try it on my own, Lord. I trust you. We're united with Christ as a result of that. We didn't do anything to become reunited with Christ. Once God justifies us, he brings us into his son, and that's where we're at. And so now, even in our sanctification, where we're working hard to, to embrace holiness, we do that because God's at work within us. So all of those things are true, and all of those things are passive and not something that we have worked on ourselves. Um, we do have a role in sanctification. We try harder under the power of God. But we have to remember where this leads. Where does this take us? Uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the, what we can't see really clearly is sanctification. Is um, In Greek, it's holification, to become holy. So instead, they use the, the Latin word sanctus, which is holiness. So he's going to lead to our becoming more holy. And without that holiness, no one will see God. Now, that's where we're going with our sanctification. That's why we're called to step in line and go with where God is leading us, to struggle against the flesh, is because if we're not doing that, we will not see God. Now, does that mean that we're saved by our good works? No, none of that means that we're saved by our good works. Let's say that um, none of these things are happening. The, the, the sins that your previous life encompassed, they don't bother you at all. It, it's easy to still embrace them. If none of those things have happened, if, if you have not been changed in some way, are you really saved? If our desires aren't really for God, have you been changed? If, if you don't strive, were you ever changed to begin with? So when Paul gets to this point and he's saying that we have to struggle, we have to uh, work out that, that, um, that salvation, 
the fruit that we get from being justified leads to our sanctification and its end, eternal life. The point he is saying here is when we get to the end, if we look at our lives and, and really nothing has changed except we go, well, yeah, I like Jesus. He's a nice guy. Has, anything, has any of the rest of that been true? If you're not struggling against sin, if you're not warring against sin, if sin doesn't bother you at all, are you justified? Were you justified? Because if you're still under Adam, that sin doesn't bother you any more than it did back then. But if you're in Christ, your, your heart has been changed and something is different. And, and you may not win every battle, but you're battling. And if you're not battling, were you justified? It's a scary proposition because I thought I was in this for eternal life. And, and I thought eternal life was a free gift and I didn't have to do anything. And, and that's, that's true. You're justified as a free gift. But the evidence, the fruit, notice he used the word fruit there. The fruit of that justification is a life that's changed. It's a life that's warring against those things. So if you can stand at this point in your life and look back and say, I've been a Christian for 20 years, um, and not much is really different. Um, I'm still pretty much the same guy, you know, enjoy a good, you know, good um, rough joke on occasion. Um, uh, tell, you know, the intermittent lie. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, not much has changed. What Paul is saying here is that's not the fruit of justification. And, and you will not arrive at the end of that, that uh, promise, which is eternal life. So what we have to do is we have to war against sin. How we do that is we don't do it by counting all our good things and saying they outweigh our bad. We don't look and say, well, God must like me because I've got X, Y, or Z. We do that out of the power that he has working in us. We subdue the, the desires of the flesh because they're contrary to God through the new heart that God's given us. And why do we do it? Because if we don't, have we really been justified? Did you start out in the right way? And so that's the, the struggle that we have is um, we do nothing to be saved. We, we can't possibly do anything to be saved. We can't save ourselves. Once we are saved, it is God who's at work in us, but we cooperate, we participate, we are engaged in that battle as well. And if you're not seeing that fight, or if you don't care about that fight, or if you lose that fight every single time, then what are you expecting at the end? What's the fruit? What's the end result of that? Um, what you have to remember is the flesh is heading in a specific direction. So you know what's coming. So when that sin catches you out, when you brag or when you're proud of somebody or something you've done, or when you gossip behind somebody's back or whatever that weakness of yours is, that whatever that sin is that, that plagues you, you know it's coming because you're, you're still walking around in this flesh. You're familiar with it. You've had it all your life. And so you know it's coming. And so now you can engage the tools that God has given you to fight against that thing, to, to begin to get ahead of it before it grabs you and will not let go. So that's the promise is he's at work in us. And the end result is eternal life. And so that's why it's so beautiful that the end of the, the um, section is, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
the wages of sin, when you engage in that sin, when that is the pattern of your life, when what it pays you, what it repays you for your service is death. Better news. There is a free gift that God is offering. It's not wages. It's not earned. It's a free gift. And it is eternal life. And it is a, a struggle in this life to live in accordance with that. But first of all, like I said, know that it's coming. Recognize your weaknesses. What is it about you that you give into on a regular basis? Know it's coming. Second of all, you have this great and tremendous truth of union with Christ. You were with Adam, you have now been set free. So you can look that sin as it's approaching in its ugly face and say, I don't have to obey you. I don't have to do that. You used to call my name and I would jump, but I'm not your slave anymore. I'm a slave to God. And so that's what we can do. That's the way we can fight it. And finally, that leads to sanctification. Sanctification is this growing in holiness. And wouldn't it be great if it was just a straight line up? I started here and now I'm there. Or even better, just up and that's it, I'm perfect. But that's just not the way it works, is we're, we're doing this all the time, forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. But because of God's work in us, the trajectory is forward. And we can't have those victories because the, the, the reason for sanctification is that eternal life. Um, and that's the good news, is it's a free gift from God that we work for. <laughs> we don't work for the free gift. We work because of the free gift. Um, that's what I'm trying to say. So uh, with that, let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, would you fit us all with the weapons that you've equipped us with to wage war against the sin that is part of our mortal body, that that passions that this mortal body carries around with it. Lord, they sneak up on us on occasion. And would you give us the tools, the, the standard of teaching that you've laid before us to wage war against those desires. So Lord, that we may be growing in Christ likeness. We may look more like him in three years than we did five years ago. And that we may be continue growing that way. And Lord, we want to confess that even that, even the desire to fight, even the, the strength to fight, is a gift of yours. It's you working in us. And so, Lord, cause our hearts to agree with you. Cause our hearts to, to align with you, to desire the same things you do, and to war against that flesh until you redeem it, until that day when it is made new, it's made glorious like Jesus' body that he's in heaven with now. He's died to sin, but he lives to you. And, Lord, that's, that's the physical reality we're looking forward to. In the meantime, Lord, have mercy on us. Thank you for your grace and lead us to walk with you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.